1: Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but please call me Mike. Today I'll be speaking with Elizabeth Becker about her new book, You Don't Belong Here, How Three Women Rewrote the Story of War. Who were your heroes during your formative years? As a child of the 1970s, many of mine were journalists, especially those reporting on war and revolution in Southeast Asia and Latin America. I'm a little embarrassed to say that as a teenager, I wanted to be Mel Gibson in the year of living dangerously or (laughs) James Woods in El Salvador, or even Nick Nolte in under fire. It was all so exciting and glamorous to the young Mike van, but note all of these role models were men and yeah, as a teenager, I idealized that romantic image of the hard drinking, rugged, tough guy, journalist. As I got to UC Santa Cruz as an undergrad in the mid 1980s, I had a lot of my ideas challenged, especially on issues of gender. And then when I read When the War Was Over for a seminar on politics of revolution, I added a new hero to my pantheon, Elizabeth Becker. In this book, she recounts the horrors of the American bombing of Cambodia, the barbaric civil war, the unfathomable crimes of the Khmer Rouge. She was there, on the ground, in Cambodia, when so much of the world had turned away. Now she has written a book about her heroes, three female journalists who covered the American war in Vietnam, the Second Indochina War, and the way it spilled into Cambodia. This book is a profile of these three journalists, but it also works as a narrative of the war in Cambodia and in Vietnam. Obviously, this book genders our understanding of the war and the reporters who told the story about this war. Today, I have the honor of speaking with Elizabeth Becker about her new book, You Don't Belong Here How Three Women Rewrote the Story of War, out just this month, February 2021, with Public Affairs. The book profiles Catherine Leroy, a French photojournalist who did some amazing things, Frances Fitzgerald, who would go on to write the widely acclaimed Fire in the Lake, and Kate Webb, an Australian journalist who covered the war in Vietnam and Cambodia and was held prisoner by the North Vietnamese Army for several weeks. These women broke a series of glass ceilings in the embarrassingly macho world of war correspondence. Like the three women she profiles in You Don't Belong Here, Elizabeth Becker began her career as a war correspondent in Southeast Asia. She arrived in Cambodia in early 1973. Writing for the Washington Post, she covered the American bombing and the war between the Long Nol government and the uh, war between the Long Knoll government and the Khmer Rouge. She wrote a major expose of the Khmer Rouge leadership. During the Khmer Rouge regime, she was one of a handful of Westerners, Westerners allowed into the country and even had an audience with Pol Pot. And she was almost killed by assassins during that surreal trip. She has been the senior foreign editor for National Public Radio and a New York Times correspondent covering national security, economics, and foreign policy. She has won accolades from the Overseas Press Club It was part of the Times team that won the Pulitzer Prize for Public Service for their coverage of 9-11. She is the author of When the War Was Over, Cambodia and the Khmer Rouge Revolution, which has been in print for 35 years and, in my humble opinion, remains one of the best books on the Khmer Rouge. She has also written Bofana, which profiles a Cambodian woman who uh, perished under the Khmer Rouge regime, America's War in Vietnam, A Narrative History. And overbooked, the exploding business of travel and tourism—an expose of the travel industry—and I have to say that when I when I saw that she had been working on the tourist industry, I, I I smiled for her because all those years covering covering wars and so forth, I I was delighted that she got to go hang out in hotels and on cruise ships. So, prop, props to you. <laughs> she also served as an expert witness in the Khmer Rouge genocide trials in Phnom Penh. Elizabeth Becker, welcome to New Books in History.
2: Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here.
1: Yeah. So before we get into this book and, uh, and, and start talking about the three women you profile, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself, um, how you came to be a war correspondent in Cambodia?
2: Um, <clears throat> I was in graduate school, and um, for various reasons, uh, I left and um, bought a one-way ticket to Phnom Penh. This is January of 1973. I had a friend who I'd met um, when I was studying in v- India, and she helped me along the way until she was thrown out. And <clears throat> uh, I had to immediately learn how to be a journalist and um, wow. learn how to report and then write about this country. I had a leg up because my studies was South Asia. And as you know, Mike, with yours, um, your academic specialty, um, Cambodia is one of those countries very much influenced by the Indian culture. So it helped. It helped in my learning the language a bit, and it helped in understanding what was going on. But also, this was the American War, and I grew up with that. I had been studying the American War since as as a concerned citizen as well as as um, an academic.
1: But you you had no formal training as a journalist when you arrived in uh, January seventy
2: three. None. None. I'd taken one journalism class at university and I was bored. Um, I'm much more interested (laughs) in studying Asia than, you know, trying to craft a sentence in a news article. But um, then, you know, know, there's nothing like having to support yourself in an exotic country in the middle of bombing to force you to learn how to become a journalist.
1: Why did you pick Cambodia? I mean, you already touched on this with the proximity to India and the, being part of the Indian culture, but why, why Phnom Penh and not Saigon in uh, in seventy three?
2: I knew Cambodia. I didn't know Vietnam. I mean, I mm. I had studied it, and as I said, I had a friend there, and she could put me up for a while. But it was the the intra- the, the weight of the war had moved to Cambodia, if you remember. Um, after 70, that was supposed to be the way the United States would get out by it was you know the, one of the many hideous nonsensical um, policies that if you expand the war, you can win it. So it, it was expanded to, to Cambodia and by the time I arrived, um, it had been it had helped them It it had made the United States, Convinced that they had to leave, but it, it engulfed Cambodia in the war. It was it was horrible. But I arrived in January '73 when um, just before the Paris Peace Accords were signed, and everybody said, "Too bad, the war's over." Well, not the war totally shifted to Cambodia, and that's when you had right. the most intense bombing of the war.
1: Right. the mo- The most intense bombing is in, in is it summer of '73, and that's when it the- starts in we- March
2: and ends in August.
1: Right. 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 Yeah, and so you you were in the field visiting, visiting these villages. Um, I, 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 that that experience is just so unfathomable to me, especially with without having. I mean, how how did you prepare yourself for this experience ahead of time, or just is it just jumping into the deep end? But the,
2: yeah, it's um, it's like um, you you work with the others. So you're going to go down highway four, you find someone to go down highway four, you watch how they do what they do. It doesn't matter if they're a photographer, a journal, a print journalist, a TV person. And you go to all the briefings, you find sources, you just, it's the ultimate internship. I I couldn't have better. And I was working with some of the best journalists of the war. So it's, I was so grateful because I am a beginner and I'm working with some very, very smart people. And, um, because like most women, um, they didn't think, you know, they were at first they were, you know, pretty kind that I was just, you know, a newbie and, um, some were very gracious.
1: Yeah. Well, okay. So the book is about women, Reporters in war zones, you—I mean, it's—it's—it's it's, it's very meta in certain ways because in—in in my mind, you're sort of the—you know—the—the the er, sort of this new generation of of female reporter in the war zone, um, and you—you—you you, you do work your experience into the narrative. But so, how did how did gender impact your experience and uh, working as a journalist in this war zone?
2: Well. To make it short because I'll be going over some of those issues yeah. when I talk and
1: it's, about the it, women. And, and obviously it's a huge question right? <laughs> <laughs>
2: but, um, you, uh, you're, you're the, I was the only woman in the press corps, permanent press corps um, and um, later a French photographer joined me uh, But so you had way too much sexual attention way too much and so you had to figure strategies on that and when you when I started to do well, um, I was accused of using my fem- feminine wiles, not my brains, um, and um, and the you never knew where it was coming from. I tell the story in in the book of uh, the new ambassador John Gunther Dean arriving and having his first press conference, and um, someone asks him a question, and he says, "Oh, you'll have to repeat it. I was distracted by Miss Becker's legs," and that's sort of symptomatic. It was. You you had that obvious level, but then you had the other level of, are they taking you seriously? Who can you trust? And um, it really forced you to be on your toes about um, all kinds of things. And um, being called, uh, was a friend of mine thrown out because she was a woman or, you know, all kinds of questions. And so you never knew where you stood. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And you certainly, um, the, the better you did, the more, um, the, the target on your back got bigger.
1: Without giving too much of a spoiler, um, and you, you reveal this in the last few pages of the book, what inspired you to write, uh, this book about these three women?
2: It, it had been on my mind. There's no question. Um, we're all getting older and, um, two are dead. And I was afraid they were sort of disappearing into history. And then, um, I don't mind being a spoiler, I was uh, testified for a week at the Khmer Rouge tribunal, the genocide trial. And um, I was, ser- I was um, questioned about whether or not I was actually a good my book was worth anything because, um, one of the, the, the only bad review I got was from a professor. Sorry, all you professors out there. And, um, and, um, and the professor said that because I'm a journalist, I didn't really know enough to write the kind of book I wrote. And, um, the defense, which didn't have much to go on, really wanted to undermine me because I was a, a, an expert witness. And so finally, I had to say, well, listen, this guy used that, if he did not use that standard on anyone but me, the other journalists who wrote books, he gave them great blurbs. But I'm, in this mix, I'm the only woman. And that, as that was coming out of my mouth, I said, people don't realize what it's been like for us. And, and my three heroines, uh, you know, they're almost lost to history. And I didn't want that to happen.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that, that was in, what, 2015 that you are giving testimony and they attacked you? You're they're, testing they're my memory
2: and I don't want to pull out the book. Yeah. Okay.
1: <laughs> they're about, they're about. They're about, yeah. Um, but, but, but decades after the fact, oh, well, yeah, um, the, yeah, the story still had not been told and, and you wanted yeah, to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so how did you... How did you pick these three women? And did were you aware of them at the time? Um, I I know you were you were you were friends with Kate Webb, or you had a connection with her. Um, she met you in the airport in Hong Kong, but on your on your way to Cambodia. Um, how were where were you of uh, Catherine Law, the photographer, and Francis Fitzgerald, probably on your radar screen because she had right. uh, no. In fact, I had her part.
2: book in my backpack. Um, everybody right. knew Frankie. I mean. It, Frankie Fitzgerald was like immediately a hero because she was young and she wrote this amazing book. I did not know Catherine Loire until I got there, and um, I learned of her because of uh, this French. I told you a French photographer was the other woman in the press corps, and she was a she. She wanted to be a protege of Catherine Law. So, um, and then once you know her, I began to, to understand who she was. And um, I picked the three because, um, you know, there was just, you know, at most I would say of practicing journalists, and this is a guesstimate, about seventy-five, maybe. And there's there are various lists that are all suspect for this side or the other, but I would say about seventy-five. And um, these three came early. They took great risks. They were on their own because news organizations at time did not consider women fit to be foreign correspondents. So they paid their ticket over and they supported themselves and they fell on their um, faces and then picked themselves up. Um, so that's one criteria. Uh, two, they um, they succeeded. I mean, it, it succeeded in um, breaking glass ceilings that you don't even know existed. Um, and they did it in a original way so that they changed how the war was seen and that was critical to me and they were rewarded people even though they've been forgotten um, katrine for instance was the first woman to win the george polk award for photography and the robert kappa gold medal award it's astonishing those two together amazing and to be the first woman is astonishing frankie's book francis fitzgerald's book is the most honored book to this day about the war Um, and, um, Kate Webb, there's a journalism prize named after her for the best Asian journalist every year. And she, she broke so many records as a combat reporter. Um, but and her, her story is interesting because more, I think than any other woman, her byline. So she starts getting real bylines for United Press International, a wire service. She's a woman, she came on her own. She's what we call a local hire, so they didn't have to pay to, you know. Um, but she was a local hire. She did, she, she did things that the men didn't want to do. She covered the South Vietnamese Army because she realized if they were the key to success, if they didn't win the war, the Americans would have, you know. Um, and her, for the first time you had a woman's byline through a wire service, which means the United States, the world and kate webb kate webb kate webb and back in the united states where women were you know filing lawsuits just to be able to get out of the women's section to start covering national news kate webb's byline was this huge help to say you say we can't do it here's kate webb she could do it and um uh, she single-handedly um a forced AP to to have women in the field, she, and it, it, you know, I you, you can't prove exactly why to Z, but it was no accident that after her, finally, the Times sent some a woman, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So these these were they just head and shoulders. the 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 thing that um, I didn't originally look at the photographers, which was my mistake, and a nice editor at the New York Times said, hmm. What about Katrine on An pe- early piece I wrote, and I w- I'm forever grateful to him because you get blindsided. You get in your little, your little stool. So, Katrine's the obvious third.
1: Right, right, and and she, she's an incredible character. We'll what? we'll get to her in a second. I mean, <laughs> I was reading some of your as I was reading your book, I was, I'd read passages out loud to to my wife. I'm like, listen to this. Look. <laughs> um, just I, I, I was I was totally captivated by her story. So, um, just you know, I, I'm a historian, and um, I'm really interested about the historical specificity of this moment of the American war in Vietnam, and from it especially in the mid '60s, um, and how it's different in terms of the the rules um, and the possibilities for female war correspondents. How 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 was the American war in Vietnam different than, say, World War II or Korea? Um, And then different from what's to come with the the institution of the embedded journalist in um, Iraq and Afghanistan Mm -hmm. and elsewhere.
2: Well, Vietnam was different for all journalists. We'll start there because um, President Johnson, and we're talking about the American War, which begins with President Johnson when he sends the troops in to take over the fighting. Um, He did not declare it a war. And this was translated on the ground as, you don't censor. And that means, and that became a completely different atmosphere for um, journalists that was unique to Vietnam and never repeated. If you had your press card, you could go anywhere with the Americans. You could go on the battlefield. You could get on a helicopter. You could go to a base. You could get in an airplane. And um, you did not have to remain with a unit. Your copy was never censored. And you had a free range. Um, Jonathan Schell, a um, great journalist, said it's like having a Euro card, Euro train, you know, <laughs> Eurorail. Euro um, it, it was never repeated. So in this much more lax atmosphere, the, the old rule, World War II rule, it, that forbid women journalists to be in the battlefield covering they should stay back with the nurses. That was not applied either at the beginning. Now, we won't go into the history totally of women, but that's that was that was the ban there you know, I don't know how many women who get around it here, there and the other, but that was the ban. So it, it, for a year or two, it was nothing done. So women—it's the first time women could follow the American Army as much as the men. However, um, when this is at the ground level, when General Westmoreland discovered um, a woman named Denby Fawcett with a Hawaiian unit, he was aghast. She, her mother played tennis with his wife, and what in the world was she doing there? In South Vietnam, and he very nice. He said, "Denby, hi, how are you?" He realized that sh- she was a reporter, and he said, "How long have you been here?" And she said, mm, three or four days, I can't remember." And ah, hi, and he went back down to Saigon, and he was furious that women were covering the war, that this the ban was not being applied, and he tried to impose it again, but through series of negotiations with I think about six women. Who were there? Um, it was not imposed, and essentially that was the that was a historic moment. It was never imposed again. And but the women who who succeeded in this great um, moment, who convinced the Pentagon, no, you do not want to reimpose it. They didn't tell their story for over thirty years, because in those days, if you draw attention to the fact that you're a woman, it's not going to be it's not going to turn out great. So the people right, they, they right. aren't running around saying I'm number one. I'm I know nobody said that. So, um, that was a big moment.
1: So it's, 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 this bizarre dance where the female journalists have to have to push forward and, and get into these opportunities yet, or take advantage of these opportunities and these loosened restrictions yet not draw too much attention to themselves or at least their gender identity because then they could get into trouble. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember that story about, uh, about Fawcett. Um, and that's, she's from a a socially well-connected family in, in Hawaii, right? I know. Um, I think the the, the name rings a bell from my, my childhood, (laughs) but, um, uh, let's get, let's get into, um, the, the three women that you profile. Um, um, and, and I'm really curious about the specific genius of each of them that you saw. Um, and let's start with, uh, Catherine Leroy. Um, she's a photojournalist from France. How 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 did she wind up in uh, in Vietnam?
2: Well, she had no no uh, photography experience either. She before she um, got to Vietnam,
1: no experience.
2: No, yeah. no, 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 no. Um, well, there weren't women photographers in media in Paris. You know, she grew up in the suburbs. She was a gifted pianist who quit. Um, she was a little bit of a hell she preferred to go to the clubs in Paris than do homework. So she dropped out of high school and um, one of, the, she fell in love first with um, parachuting. And so she got a parachuting license and one of her professor, one of her teachers was a um, somehow had something to do with Vietnam. And so she started looking at Perry match and she said, Oh, that's cool. I think I'll do that. So she gets a crummy job in Paris, raises, uh, saves enough money to buy a one-way ticket to Saigon. She talks a couple of agencies into giving her a letter of accreditation, which, you know, that's, a, this is a joke. haha. Ha, this little girl, she's only five feet. She's going to go and take a couple of pictures of Saigon and come back. So she has that. She has a like a one, like a camera. And she keep, she ties it around her neck with a shoelace. And there she is in, in Saigon. And um, she she was at first treated like this um, cute little thing that um, they took out to lunch. Ha ha ha. She'll probably end up going back, but she was very serious and she walked into the office of the head of the Associated Press Photography, a legend named Horst Foss. And he had a um, an unusual mind uh, idea back then that he would buy photographs, no matter who took them, including women. And she was the first woman he put his, uh, that she, he said, okay, Here's some film. If you if you take a good photo, I'll I'll print it. So that's Katrine. And she went out, her genius was um she learned everything in the field. So she comes with no preconceptions. She's she's no idea what where you're supposed to stand, what you're supposed to do, da 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 da. And she learns her English from the Marines.
1: She, yeah, those, those, those anecdotes were delightful. Like, and, um, learning to swear from the Marines.
2: Yes, and um, this is all going to get her in trouble. And then, and
1: yeah, um, yeah.
2: and her, her, it it didn't take her long to realize that what she wants to do was to get close. And the way she describes it is that all of her pictures, she's looking for the eyes. She's going for the eyes, and um, she doesn't do heroics, which in those days were was the main thing. And her her. Combat pictures are filled with anguish and um, moods that you never see in combat. And she's very attentive to the civilians who are part of the scene. Um, She started taking the pictures and Horace Foss, who himself won a Pulitzer, said, he said, I've never seen photographs like this. So her genius was to find the humanity in war. And the other thing is that um, she was willing to spend far more time in the field than almost anybody else. I mean, she her first year, I think, everybody was shocked. They never saw her in Saigon. Now, part of that was because she was so poor. And if she was she out could, in the field. She could eat, um, <laughs> eat
1: with the field. She, she ate
2: that crappy food. <laughs> and she didn't have to worry about um, renting yeah. any place that was habitable. Um yeah. And, but other part was that she used her, her size to advantage. She was barely five feet. She had trouble keeping a hundred pounds on her. I mean, she was always losing weight, but she, she was, she got on the ground to take pictures like this. And she, she ran over here people, they, some of her most famous pictures, the guys, she took the photographs. I said, I didn't, I can't believe she was there. It was super dangerous and they never saw her. And she dressed like a—I mean, she looks like a little boy in a Halloween costume in the clothing. She, you know, because they all wear that. And um, but um, she paid a price for that. She had horrible PTSD. And the men told her, you know, you don't belong here. This is for the men. And they tried to get rid of her. They, you know, all that sort of stuff. And um, and she paid the price. You
1: know, and, and she did. I mean, brick barriers. I mean, she she jumped with the airborne.
2: She's the only, yeah. And as it turned out, she was the one that was qualified. Now, right. has another woman ever done that? I, yeah, I don't know. But she was the. She's not only the only ju- woman; she's the only journalist because that was the first and last. The first and last air, airborne air, drop with air, it yeah,
1: uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, that wasn't. But just just that idea of uh, you know this diminutive um, French Parisian. But he's the end um, with these, with these uh, airborne guys. I mean, it's just, it's just so striking. And and really, like the way you describe it, she really made an effort to prove to them, uh, every time she was with the un- new unit on the first day, the first night, prove to them that she was in it with them, that she was going to walk, she was going to carry her stuff, she was going to march and, and sleep in the rough with them, correct?
2: Yeah. If she wrote to her father... If I stumbled, I had to pick myself up. Um, if they had seen me need them, it would have been over. And so she and and she was not embarrassed. She figured out how to go you know, go to the bathroom on her own, which is one of the things the military I said, Oh, you can't be in the field because you know the, the gender thing about where are you gonna go to the bathroom, where you're gonna sleep, and she, she just sort of got rid of all those issues.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: time, I was sort of curious of the way that she identifies with the soldiers and um, really identifies with the Marines. Um, was, did that color her reporting? I mean, she's, she's a photojournalist, so you, she's not writing, putting, um, putting this into words, but um, could you speak to the, the, her sort of identification with the Marines?
2: Um, she said that um, you go through something like that with them, and of course, they're like family. Um, but at the same time, her last big photo essay for life, she's she totally identifies with the Vietnamese people, and she says maybe 20% are in favor of the communists and 20% are in favor of Saigon, and it's the people in the middle who are lost and they're the ones who are suffering the the burdens they carry so yeah, she they wouldn't want
1: be left alone to tend to yeah, their rice fields and, and she um
2: she's she just identifies with everybody and so yes she spends all that time with the marines so yes she does and um at the same time with all the vietnamese as i said you can you, it just comes all the way through and this is um this last essay that i met, just mentioned that it was um in terms of photography, it was considered one of the most forward-looking, modern kind of um, essay. Mm-hmm.
1: And the next figure that you profile is Frances Fitzgerald, uh, Frank, you call her Frankie, um, uh, who, you know, establishes quite a career for herself. And I think of the three, possibly the, the most widely known in the, in the general reading audience or the general sort of knowledge. Um what what was her experience? Um, she's uh, comes from a very well-heeled background, and how how did she wind up in uh, in in Vietnam well, covering the war?
2: She's from not only a wealthy family but a patrician family and um, a very elite upbringing. She's whip smart. Um, she had this, um, but also one of those um, only child loneliness sort of thing, and this private school, et cetera. And um, she wanted to be a journalist. And her first attempt was to go to Newsweek where they said, um, women are only researchers. Women can't be writers. So she she had enough money that she could try to be a freelancer. And um, she spent a couple of years in Paris trying to write a novel, didn't work. And then she goes to New York and does some freelancing for a New York um, uh, newspaper but there was no chance of becoming staff or anything on the sort of things she wanted to do, and so she got the idea of, oh, I'll just go to Southeast Asia, and go to Vietnam, and um, she would, did.
1: Would, would you, was going to be one stop on on a major trip. Stops. She yeah. allows Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia, just for a few months. Uh,
2: right, but however, that's what she says. However, she makes a lot of plans for her Saigon stop. So, I mean, there's a lot going on underneath that maybe she... Uh So she gets there, and um, that's it. She's in the middle of the biggest story in the world, and um, she just becomes completely engrossed in it. And um, she wants to write magazine pieces, not the Time magazine, Newsweek magazine, but long-form journalism. And in those days, people did not write long-form journalism in war zones. So, in a way... She had the field to herself and she decided that the story of the war was in Vietnam, not necessarily in Vietnam, the whole countryside, not necessarily just on the battlefield. And she, she specifically, she, yes, yeah, she would, as a print journal, she don't have to get close like Katrine did, but she would, you know, she would certainly go to the very rear guard and, but then she would go to the hospital where the civilians are being treated and they're treated like there's nothing there for them. And she just did this whole thing. She said, where is this war in the history of Vietnam? What are the Vietnamese people really like? What's their culture? How are they accepting this war? And what is it? how do they see the two sides? So she, 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 was, she had a very deep sense that this American war had to be seen in the Vietnamese context. And, um, so she wrote, she, she would go to the PTT, their press and telephone and telegraph office. And the fancy reporters all had press cable cars and they'd send them. She put her magazine pieces in an envelope, a little stamp and sent it off. And I don't think she had a single rejection. I mean, and this is no experience before no experience. I mean, she, honors graduate from Radcliffe in middle Eastern history, but this was all new to her. And, um, she parlayed that um, her last two pieces from Vietnam. One was for the Atlantic, where she wrote about the tragedy of Saigon, and this is '66. We'd only the U.S. had only been there for a year, and she more or less spells out what the problem is. That you know, yeah, they're in they're in the battlefield, but look what has happened, in Saigon, and this, the the villagers and farmers are being forced from their homes. They're stuck in this horrible um, expanding slum and there's no money to take care of them, et cetera, et cetera. And then she goes into the whole politics of it. But so she goes back to the United States and spends several years um, doing the research for what became fire in the lake, which, yeah. as I said, most honored.
1: Yeah. So she, she not only had to deal with um, uh, gender prejudice, but also there's a certain level of suspicions of her, of her class identity and her, and her connections. Correct. I mean, she's, yeah, each one, she, there's a different reason. So, yeah, Katrine they,
2: yeah. she was, she, Katrine was acting too much like a man. And Frankie right. just, if she does well, it's all oh, because she's got connections. She must have really good connections in the embassy. Her dad was number three in CIA. And, yeah. um and, but it, it was the opposite. Um, her best, uh, Buddy in the embassy treated her like a hostess, not like he wanted her to help him with um, a dinner party. He didn't. He didn't treat her like a serious journalist, and um, and it, it's it's the other way around because of her upbringing um, with the power brokers. She grew up knowing them. I mean, her mother was the mistress of Adlai Stevenson. She knew how to be skeptical about what's going on. So her privilege did not make her close to the embassy. It made her skeptical of the embassy. It made her skeptical of all this sort of stuff. So when um, her book did so well, uh, shock. It was the same year as um, David Halberstam's book, um, Best in the Brightest. And now Halberstam was like already a giant. He was, um, you know, he deservedly won the Pulitzer for a very early coverage of the Vietnam War under um, President Kennedy, um, and they couldn't believe that she um, swept the field when, and Halberstam didn't get anything. So right. um, there, yeah. It, and it's still, I mean, to this day, when I would tell people, Frankie's one of the women. They said, "Oh, but she had it made. She done it." <laughs> if it was so easy, why is she only the rich, the only one who did it? <laughs> I mean, right, no, right. it's, not.
1: it's I mean, not. I just find that so fascinating that, like, no matter what. um, sort of the the boys club finds a way to weaponize some aspect of the female reporter's identity against them. So, you know, uh, uh, Lois too, too poor and too, too dodgy and and looks like a ragamuffin in her uniform and can't take her seriously. Whereas, um, Francis Fitzgerald is too well-connected, too elite. So we can't take her seriously. There's all, there's always something, uh, something there. One, one of the things that, um, uh, struck me was uh, when you talk about uh, Fitzgerald's writing um, is that she looks at Vietnamese women in a non-stereotypical fashion. Um, could you say a few words about that?
2: Well, first of all, none of these women consider themselves women liberationists or feminists or anything. So mm-hmm. it's that era. Um, but um, And there was a horror at being stereotyped as a woman's reporter. Mm-hmm. So the um, what ev- everybody was fleeing was um, the fact that there, the odds were that if they were going to be a journalist back in their home country, it would be in the women's section. So um, all uh, the the women, not just these th- these three, but I interviewed other women. They said, "No, no, no, we would never write about women because then we'd be stereotyped." Well, fr- and so what you see in a lot of reporting, well, men especially, but you know whoever, women are. Um, anonymous sort of prostitutes or farmers or whatever, or they're wives of famous people like Madame Nhu, or they're they're the pretty young people that you see in Graham Greene's novel, the pretty young Vietnamese women who are the most gorgeous people in the world, et cetera, et cetera. So Frankie instead writes a big piece for Vogue, talk about going against type, about really the women of Saigon are – some of the best business people in the country. And she has three women who, as she said, oh, they look like these fragile little butterflies. They're not at all. And that um, she makes strong arguments that, that the economy is being run by a lot of these women. So uh, that's the way she saw everything. She just did not want to, she just really had to pull those veils
1: away. And if you know anything about Vietnamese culture, I mean, yes, the women hold the purse strings. I mean, this is a there are many jokes amongst Vietnamese about this. Um yeah, well, that, you know, yeah. they go back centuries, right?
2: Well, yeah, but you know, try to find it in the war reporting,
1: right? Right. Yeah, well, it, she did try it. and find it in, in the the writing from the French colonial period. I mean, when I, I don't I don't work on the American war, but when I read about it, there's just so many tropes, especially in regards to Vietnamese women that are just this white male fantasy that keep coming back i mean be it hanoi in the 1890s be it saigon in the 1960s um and (laughs) you also see it in some writing today but i won't name names Um, um you when you talk about uh, her piece in the Atlantic that had uh, such a huge impact, um, you comment that uh, war correspondents are normally lauded for their physical bravery, but um, you claim that she showed real moral courage and that it was her moral courage that um, we should be celebrating uh, her for. Could you, could you say a few words on that?
2: Well, because um, it's not, we're still in the era when, you could. Most journalists came, critique, willing to critique American um, war st- strategies, but few question the validity of why we're there. Um, Neil Sheehan, who I, I I admire a lot, I mean, he's he says that very well in his in his um, his work that he came thinking rah 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 rah. But he still—they never truly questioned the validity of it until many years later. Um, Frankie, as I said, she was willing to be skeptical about everything, and um, and that took moral courage because uh, she, to this day, is always accused of being anti-war from the get-go—that a, a demagogue—and that's hard to work. You know, it, it, to this day, uh, oh, she got all those great reviews because it was the anti-war crowd who liked her that's a kind of moral courage that you don't always see by the time people were willing to say yes the whole foundation of this war you know the cold war falling dominoes no that it was it was it was that was wrong and and then what we did to the to vietnam is wrong and so on and so forth but frankie did and um and this is a woman who was not In the highest regard, because for all the things I've said, and then she writes the book proving this point. So, and I mean, and um, as you'll see in later in the book, um, to this day, she's very highly criticized,
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
2: very criticized.
1: Although um, this this that was canonical reading along with your book when I was an undergraduate, yeah, in the, I mean in the nineteen eighties, I mean yeah, that was yeah. on, on quite a few uh, UC Santa Cruz syllabi. Um, tell us about Kate Webb, um, who who was a friend of yours.
2: Yep, yeah. um, Kate is Australian, and and that's what's interesting is my three women came from three continents, yeah. and um and and that's uh, that's a nice reflection on um, the um, press corps because. Americans We all know the Americans, but I worked with people from all over the place, you know, mostly European, but lots of Japanese. One of my best buds was Japanese. Um, we had Koreans um, and and a lot of Australian New Zealanders. And so Kate's from Australia from one of those families that you know, you know upper middle class, her grandfather was the Archbishop of New Zealand. but she had a lot of tragedies in her childhood. And um, and um, and one of the last was her parents were killed in an automobile accident right after you know right when she's in college. So it was tough. And she graduated always with honors, all these women, um, in philosophy, and thought she was going to be an artist and had to find a job to pay a debt, a school debt. She got a job as what we would call a copy boy in um, a newsroom, the Sydney hair mirror. And while she was passing copy from desk to desk, she of course read it. She's one of those types. She notices where she is. And, what, and um, she started reading about the Vietnam war. And Australia is one of the few countries that allied with the United States.
1: Yeah. Often same, same troops, Australia, South yeah. Korea. Yeah.
2: Um, that was it. You know, Australia and South Korea. And, um, at no European. The European said this was insane. So, um, so she was interested, and um, and like that, she said, "Oh, okay, I'm going to take my typewriter and go to Saigon." And she had again one way ticket, no promise of a job. And she had the hardest of of the three. She had the hardest time getting on her feet. She was told to her face um, by the United Press International bureau chief, "Why would I hire a woman?" She couldn't get assignments she was nearly lost her um tourist visa cuz she couldn't get an accreditation until a, an American woman editor gave her accreditation she was able to get going and um she really had to prove her stuff she did it in during the tet offensive of 68 when she was one of the first she was a freelancer but she was one of the first to um to arrive at the scene of the US embassy when the communists had um you know launched the Tet all over the country. But, you know, the, the biggest shock was that they were able to get into the U.S. Embassy in Saigon. And Did she...
1: You just, if you could just remind me, um, the the morning of the Tet Offensive, she wakes up and doesn't know that it's happening, right? No, nobody does. Um, yeah, does it, because it's, it's you wake up Tet, so early. fireworks, yeah. yeah.
2: You wake up she's, to, she's,
1: she's getting a helicopter ride up north or something.
2: She was going to go to the airport and get on a plane to play coup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as she's it. waiting hail a taxi at four in the morning or something. Um, Military chiefs go by real real fast, real fast, real fast, and in the direction of the embassy. So she gets herself over there, and is one of the first to see, once, once the communists have been killed, she's the first to see the destruction. And this is a brand new embassy, you know, the big center of Saigon. And she writes, it looked like a butcher shop in Eden. And that phrase, well, first of all, her reporting helped get her, Real work with UPI, but that phrase you can find in all kinds of history books. It's it's one of those phrases that you know, rarely do they credit her, but it, it's her phrase, and that's that's the way people saw it. And of course, we all know the importance of Tet in our history of Vietnam War. Anyway, so, so she, she goes by, on
1: by chance. She was able to be there, and this 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 then sets her up her career. Uh-huh.
2: And um, she continues. It's it's quotes by chance, but it's not by chance because she's the one who gets up early. She's the one who notices what's going on. So it's chance, but it's not chance. Yeah. And, yeah. um, and she does this consistently. She, she's now, um, a local hire, which is really the bottom of the rung. And, um, that's usually, um, local hires are usually, uh, you know, the people of the country, like a local hire is usually Vietnamese, but they put her in that slot and, um, she raises above it. And, um, She volunteers to do the stuff, the dangerous stuff nobody else wants to do, like night, going out on night patrol with the South Vietnamese. Um, And um, she just writes story after story. Um, Then she has a horrible experience with an American um, Green Beret. And we'll just skip over. And um, we're now in May, 1970, when the United States um, invades Cambodia and the war shifts to that battlefield. And she's so well thought of that she's named the number two in the new Cambodia Bureau in Phnom Penh. Uh, another an American man is flown in from the Middle West and she's his number two. And <clears throat> that phase was the most dangerous for journalists of the whole war. In four months, as many journalists were killed in Cambodia as had been killed in Vietnam the previous six years, and um, one of them.
1: What? What? Why? Why was it so much more dangerous? Okay, you talk about this in the book, but um, I thought that was very interesting.
2: Well, in Vietnam, as we were just saying, you were with the Americans when you were covering the battle, and you had American hospitals. All in, you had American um, helicopters. You had. Uh, you were. You had all the American facilities, and even the South Vietnamese. They. It was. The war had been going on for so long; they had it all. To if you were injured, you knew you knew you would be taken care of. Cambodia was a neutral country until 1970. No infrastructure, no Americans, because uh, the uproar in the United States when um, President Nixon announced the invasion was incredible. Uh, it's mostly remembered by Kent State, but so from this very um, established battlefield experience in South Vietnam you go to Cambodia where there's essentially no army the Americans were forced to return they can only um, help the Congress says no you can't spread the war so they could only help with you know lots of money and, and military aid but essentially uh, bombing and so journalists rented cars that had until weeks earlier had been used for tourists they hired who any Cambodian who could speak their language English French whatever and um, and they had to rely on Cambodian intelligence because the Americans did not have the infrastructure and it, it was it was a slaughterhouse you'd go down a highway and you ran into an ambush and that, and this is in, um, a Merce- an old Mercedes limo, not in an APC. So it was, it, it took a while to figure out how to cover that war.
1: Right. Right. Um, so what, what, how, how t- tell us the story of how she wound up uh, being taken prisoner by the, the North Vietnamese army. I mean, that's just, uh, I mean, just absolutely fascinating.
2: So her boss was killed, and um, she, UPI said, "Okay, Kate has to be the bureau chief." Again, this was uh, this was astonishing that a woman would be the bureau chief for UPI in a battle zone. Now, I know women in different places did some things, but nobody—I could not find another one who did anything like this. But again, you don't you don't draw attention to it. You right. know, oh yeah. ooh, i think maybe kate's the first one in a you know no but she was a she was the bureau chief and that's a very big deal upi it, there are very few news organizations had permanent offices there so she was a she was very important but um she was also in charge of all the reporting and the photographers then these would be cambodians who assisted her um and um she was adamant that she would take the same risk as they would, which is Kate's MO. And um, one year after she became bureau chief, she was captured on highway four with five others, um, journalists, four Cambodians and a Japanese journalist. And they were held for 28 days by the North Vietnamese and the reason the North Vietnamese were there was because once the Americans invaded, um, it was to cut off supplies to North Vietnam. Anyway, strategically, the North Vietnamese. That's v- like v- the end of the
1: Ho Chi Minh Trail. Right.
2: So, strategically, Campbell, right? the North Vietnamese said, no, you're not going to do that to us. And they came in and they took over essentially half of the country to protect their strategy, the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So, Kate was arrested. Uh, I mean, she wasn't arrested. She was captured and held for 28 days. And while she was held.
1: um, It was 28 days, 28 days. Wow.
2: And um, while she was held, uh, she was declared dead. The New York Times ran her obit, which tells you how important she was by then. Her obit was in the New York Times. And um, then she came out alive. And boy, that's when she's the legend. She's the legend. I mean, everywhere everybody knew Kate Webb and she looked at, she's gorgeous. Um, and, um, she writes a book and, um, then comes back and PTSD gets her. It was very hard and she'd sort of disappear and, you know, PTSD for, for, um, soldiers wasn't, wasn't in I mean, people, you know, shell shock. I mean, it was the olden days when PTSD was not, um, considered going on. And, um, so it, it, for soldiers, much less for journalists, much less for a woman journalist. So, um, Kate got the reputation as a drunk. She drank too much. I mean, every, oh Kate, Lovely girl. Well, lovely she drinks too much. I mean, um, did she drink more than the men? I have no idea, but you know, a woman, you know, Kate,
1: but it, because the woman, it stands out more, right? right. right? So, yeah.
2: oh, I feel so sorry for Kate, da 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 da. Um, and but uh, so she's she's in Hong Kong, and um, and what's interesting is that nineteen seventy five is clearly going to be the end of the war. Frankie Fitzgerald in New York gets a rare visa to Hanoi, so she's in Hanoi just as the troops are going down. Kate talks her bosses in Hong Kong and letting her go to see the evacuation in South Vietnam. And she gets to USS Blue Ridge, which was the ship where the American embassy and everybody came. She became the lead pool reporter. Catherine Loa in the Middle East drops everything and flies down to Saigon so she could see the end. And I think that shows you the dedication of these three women. Amazing. I, you know, I don't like to say they were the only ones, or so on and so forth. But it's to me, it's singular um, the dedication they had to this story and um, the, the amazing work they did. And again, well, Kate's.
1: But but even more than that, the the way in which this war had become a part of them. Oh yeah. Mm. Um, I mean, it's not just a story, but like that that they have that they have to be there at the end, especially. Yep. Uh, Catherine the and 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 she's she's there when the uh, the famous North Vietnamese tank yep. uh, pushes through the yep. the gates at the presidential palace, right? Yeah,
2: right, and you can see that? her in the the journalists, all the journalists that, who are still there, and and uh, most of the Americans did not stay, but you can see her with the, all the press, and they're all big, and then there's little Katrine. but um, yeah, and um, and Kate for all of her success during the war afterwards she got the nice assignment in Singapore, but quit not too long afterwards because her boss said he, she should have to be his mistress and she did not take this well. And without saying why she complained to New York that this guy was, she couldn't work with him. And um, New York took the guy's side you know cuz you know you don't bring up sex, sexual harassment Nah, you don't bring that up you cuz that's a that's a no no non-starter. And so Kate quit and she didn't do any journalism for 10 years. And then she went back with the French news service Agence France-Presse.
1: And and had didn't, quite the career after that. had a lovely that. career,
2: great career. Yeah. And um, and her her um, her real identity with the local reporter she worked with was obvious. She fought for them to have better um, salaries, that they should be given cut lines and, and bylines, um, which was really hard. Um, it was so singular that um, there the Kate Webb Award is for Asian journalists who show that same kind of courage and determination that Kate did.
1: That's fantastic. Um, so you, several times you've mentioned trauma and post-traumatic stress and could you could you say a few words about how um they may have experienced post traumatic stress or trauma differently than um than others due to various gender norms and so forth and and maybe i mean I was thinking about it maybe the the they're particularly isolated and lonely um because of gender boundaries uh, amongst their fellow journalists and so forth did did that have an impact uh, accentuate um the the trauma um
2: i don't know i i don't know if i can make that diagnosis but they were certainly very lonely and um and without saying like katrine had a horrible time going back to paris and she got she was back and she she just couldn't understand why she couldn't couldn't she couldn't adapt at all and then she got an assignment to cover woodstock and that sort of helped because she could she just said okay i'm just going to be with the with the guys and because she had found some vets and so she um she hung out with the vets and and um but did she ever recover people would say no did kate ever recover people would say no and you know frankie was not in that um and anywhere near that kind of at all and she would say no i had none of it but um but it's and I quote several other women who say, you know, it's, it's the shock. No, um, Katrine was wounded badly. That's also part of it. Um, the illnesses you get and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, as women, I think maybe you're right, but I, 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 the one thing I try really hard in this book is just, and I go to great lengths to show their whole life, their romantic life, their, their, you know, the letters they write to their family, all that sort of stuff, so that I don't have to make a diagnosis. So that you, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend I know. But you will, you get into their heads, you read what they're thinking, and then you can make up your mind because that, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a um, argument I don't want to get into. Did they do it because they're women? No, is it because of, no? You, you know their whole life, and you see how they feel it. You see the trouble that it comes about from a woman succeeding in war, both professionally and emotionally and in in their personal life. So there you are.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, and the way in which you capture their humanity is just very, very thoughtful, graceful prose. I mean, I I just love those sections. And I I wanted to ask you about um, including their romantic lives. Um, and what, why you thought that was important. And maybe how, how would you or one write about that differently than a male journalist?
2: Well, um, it's important because uh, I'll do the second one. Uh, you, you can't understand um, what they were facing without knowing their personal life. I, and as a woman, I know that your romantic life is a barometer of all the other stuff. And, um, now maybe I would, uh, and, um, how you're treated romantically, it's, you know, there's no question. I mean, no question. And if I did not have that in, you would not understand what it meant to be a woman covering that war period. And I, you know, I didn't go through the hoops to explain why that's true, but I know that's true and um and i read of course a lot of the memoirs of the men and they don't even not even close not even close um uh women are the romantic they they will some will have romantic interest no question um but you never hear that other side of the woman and you you know it's like but i was not doing this to to make any she's a woman versus he's a man i did this because I don't think you could understand what it's like to be a woman in that war without telling the whole story.
1: Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, could you say a little bit about their afterlives um, after, after the war after, or after their war? Um, you know, you, you mentioned uh, Catherine Laval going to to Woodstock and then um, falling in with the, the anti-war veterans and, uh, and um, helped or was one, one of the, the cinematographers for, a, a film that um, a, a prominent anti-war film.
2: Yep, um, Ron Kovic is. It was when he first became known, and then after that, he wrote his autobiography, and that which which
1: the, the Oliver Stone, Tom yep. Cruise vehicle, yep. right? Yeah.
2: Um, and then um, she she did very well in the Middle East, and then things didn't go well, and um, she died quite young. Her last assignment was to. For Perry Match to go back and um, take a photograph of one of the um, young medics who she photographed in the middle of battle. And she found him, and he was a total 100% mess. I mean, he'd never recovered from the war. His body was covered with tattoos of the names of every single veteran, he was estranged from his children. And he died not long after. And sadly, so did Katrine. She lived in LA, Los Angeles. And um, her career just, she was she was not a good manager. Um, I think she suffered from all of the too many struggles. She couldn't tell a friend from enemy. Bad temper. I mean, I show in the book, I don't pretend not to. I mean, I, she, I couldn't help, but you had to put all that in. So it's all in well, there. The, the,
1: but, when she receives the award, and then uh, and she jumps on berates everyone. But
2: but I have <laughs> yes. to say, for all of the and everybody, um, she got a reputation for b- being promiscuous. Please, men, don't call her promiscuous. I saw what you guys were doing. But um, but what's so for all this stuff that she was trouble? She da da da. She after she died, she was so beloved by her her peers that they put together a foundation called Dotation, French for foundation, Dotation Catherine Leroy, where they put brought for the first time, they found all of her photographs. Of her, there's some in Paris, some here, some there with her mother, some in L.A., and all of her papers to create this foundation so she didn't be forgotten. So when I said, can I please, I want to write this book, Catherine is one of the three, they said, okay, thank you. They had, it was all, I mean, they, it was they amazing. Yeah. Can you imagine any of us having friends like that? I don't think my friends would ever do that. <laughs> I mean, that's such a testament to her alone. Yeah. And Frankie yeah. had a very successful career. I don't think she ever um, – she was sort of a public intellectual. She was the head of um, Penn, um, one of the historical societies. She, not, she's the only of the three who married, but she was 50 years old by the time she married. None of them had children, um, and um, as I said, uh, she, the critique of her book, was almost um, really savage. And um, when,
1: um, see, I, I was so oblivious to that. I mean. I, maybe it was my UC Santa Cruz education, but everyone's celebrating. No, it went out
2: of you. Book. It went out, well because it's it's one of those books because everything that's been found out since, of course, you can critique She's it because right. now all yeah. the archives are open, all that sort of stuff. Yeah.
1: But yeah, but was in, in the seventies, the critique was savage.
2: No, this the critique was as it gets older. No, the critique gets worse and okay. worse over the years.
1: Okay. And oh, okay.
2: That's what I'm saying. It's the critique gets worse and worse over the years because you find out. What you know, you archives, interviews, all this sort of stuff. So fine, but the book for its time was amazing, and so um, I didn't realize just how much the pushback was until Ken Burns's Vietnam series, which was two thousand seventeen. And um, I look on the uh, the website for recommended books, histories of Vietnam, fifty eight books, and Frankie's wasn't there. And then you look that up all the critiques show, yeah. and it was like, oh, she, and I interviewed a lot of guys and, oh, she relied too much on Paul Muse. And, oh, she doesn't really know the Vietnam character. And so I went to the, everybody's favorite, um, war f- um, historian, uh, Frederick Logevall, who's at Harvard. Sure. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I knew he liked the book and he, he said it's seminal and you have to judge it for its time. It's, it's one of the important books. And, um, and he's he thinks he sees some envy, some jealousy, and maybe a little misogyny, and he said that on the record, so um <sighs> doesn't let go, and so that yeah. that's it yeah. and then um and then I told you about Kate,
1: yeah, yeah um so you you've been really generous with your time and uh, we need to, we need to wrap up, but I, I, I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> um, but um, as a whole, what, what do these three women mean to you uh, both professionally and personally?
2: Well, um, it, it's, you know, like any life, you don't know what they mean until it gets, you get older and older. Right. And um, they're just like the touchstones and, as I realized that uh, people would you were in the Vietnam war. I didn't think any women were in the Vietnam war. I mean, honestly, Um, did you get any close to the action? I don't think you did. Did you? And um, I said, and, um, women photographers had never heard of Catherine Roy. Frankie, she wrote that book, but that didn't mean she was in the war. Does it? And, um, Kate Webb, yeah, she, uh, no, I don't know her. I mean, even Australia, they, um, a few years ago, they put out a, a stamp with Kate on it um, for their Veterans Day, but the average public, uh, uh-uh. I mean, the book is out in Australia and the editor who who bought it, the publisher said, I had no idea we had, Australia hadn't had anybody like Kate. So a lot of this is, it's definitely um, homage, but I think it's also, um, I don't want them forgotten. Um, they meant. A lot to all of us and um, it's also a sense that the more you know your history uh, uh, it's coming back and forth and back and forth but they were there too they were there too and um, if you read the books about uh, by the men about the war they're not there they're just not there and I realized well they're not there because women haven't written one there are a couple of attempts and I'm, and I acknowledge the attempts, but I said, okay, I'm going to make my attempt and this is my attempt.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, and the, your book works so well, not just as a profile of these women, but as a narrative of the war. Um, I think, uh, you know, someone who knew, knows nothing about the war would through their lives and through their, their careers follow the trajectory of the war. And I think it's just really, really just a, a it was, it was a delightful read, um, Yeah. Um, finally, before I let you go, I've got, uh, two final questions. Um, uh, can you recommend two books or more for, for the audience of your picking?
2: Okay. Um, because this is 2021 February, I would first recommend the great influenza by John Barry (laughs) speaking (laughs) of history. Um,
1: well, been as very... someone who writes about disease, uh, yes. I approve.
2: <laughs> yes, um, I, it's been it was such a help to me to read the history of the influenza, but back to to the war, um, the Frederick Logevall, who I just mentioned, his book "Embers um, of War" about the French War is um, it's a keystone and is beautifully written. So I would recommend that for the historian in you. And then I want to recommend two novels, and that's the two I think you want. Um, They're both uh, by uh, Asian-Americans. One is uh, The Sympathizer by Viet Thanh Nguyen, and um, he's California. Um, Pulitzer Prize for his first effort and is now a rock star in in
1: literature. Pulitzer Prize, MacArthur. I mean, grand. just name and it. And the nonfiction book that came out at the same time was shortlisted for a national book award. I mean, unbelievable. So I yeah. pretty much love hate him. <laughs> but uh <laughs> also uh listeners, I I interviewed him about his nonfiction book, um Nothing Never Dies about memory and, and war in Vietnam. Um so that's in the in the backlog of New Books Podcast. So and and any any day now, the sequel to The Sympathizer is coming out, The Committed. So I'm hoping to get him back.
2: And um, and then I'm going to recommend a, a Canadian woman, Madeline Tien, T H I E N, um, Sino-Malaysian Canadian, and her book, uh, "Do Not Say We Have Nothing," was shortlisted for the book Booker Prize. But her book on camp, her novel about Cambodia, that was "Do Not Say We Have Nothing," is about um, uh, the Cultural Revolution, but. That's to show her bona fides. But her earlier book, Dogs at the Perimeter, Dogs at the Perimeter by Madeleine Tien, that I think is one of the best um, novels about um, Cambodia in the Khmer Rouge period.
1: Excellent. And you've never okay. heard of it. <laughs> no, I haven't. Dog, Is it is it easy to find?
2: I should think so. Um, once she got, she was shortlisted for the um, booker. In fact, a lot of people thought she would get it. Um, her 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 catalog went up, but she's she's in Vancouver, just up the road from you. It's <laughs> Madeline and T H I U. It's a long
1: road from Santa Cruz to Vancouver, but
2: <laughs> and um, um. and uh, there are lots of Cambodian authors who wrote memoirs, and I didn't want to pick one of those, but yeah. I I wanted, yes. but Madeline um, did a great job, so. We, yeah, our yeah. Asian American friends, I think, need a l We cannot support them more. For- absolutely,
1: yeah. absolutely. So, um, finally, what are you working on now? What, um, what can we hope to see from you next? Oh, I do not.
2: It, I don't do it so quickly. I mean, I've done <laughs> during this whole pandemic. I've I've continued writing about um, tourism because this is the flip side. There's no tourism. Right. Yeah. And so. Um, we've learned two things about tourism. One, we're more economically dependent on it than we thought. All those jobs are gone. And two... I
1: I live live in Santa Cruz and I'm from Hawaii. Yeah. And I've got friends in Cambodia, so I know.
2: Yeah. But on two, we also see the damage it does. Yeah. Because we had the blue skies. We had, uh, without the tourists, we had all kinds of wonderful things. And in Europe, people were so happy. They had Their cities back, they could go to Louvre and they had it to themselves. You know all this sort of stuff. So we saw the price, and And we're now
1: the surf surf was uncrowded in Santa Cruz during the uh, during the lockdown. So I was happy. There you go.
2: There you go. And then um, and I think that helped. That's helped rethink. I don't know how it's going to work, but it's rethink. And um, Key West is one of my keys in this because they voted in the November election to forbid all big cruise ships from coming and to only allow environmentally conscious s- small cruise ships to come. And um, it's very much a dynamic situation now. So
1: okay. Well I look forward to reading more of your work.
2: Okay. Thank you so, very much for having me.
1: Yeah Elizabeth Becker, thank you so much for talking with us. This it was this was, great. this was a real delight. This has been a conversation with Elizabeth Becker about You Don't Belong Here, how three women rewrote the story of war, out with public affairs in 2021. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.